0: Welcome to Inside the War Room. Round right here. As always, today's guest is Chad O. Jackson. But first, let me ask you to drop a five star review wherever you may be. Helps spread the word. Okay, today's guest is Chad O. Jackson. Chad is a Texas master craftsman, entrepreneur, researcher who starred in the 2020 documentary film Uncle Tom and the 2022 film Uncle Tom Volume 2, which he co wrote, assistant edited, edited, I can't speak, and co produced um we will link to his website of course in the show notes and a very good and interesting discussion uh today about the movie uncle tom too let's get to it chad welcome to the war room thank you for having me okay so let me give a little behind the scenes here um we were booking this and they said hey you need you need to watch this film before you do this interview and sometimes i get chances to do it sometimes i don't but i took the time this morning to watch Uncle Tom 2, I haven't seen one, but I watched Uncle Tom 2, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, some of the things in this this, this film are, um, I would say some things that you hear are talking points, if you will, that you hear are long, modern, uh, right-wing people, but some of the things are not, um, some of the things, like some of the history aspects that you go into in this film were, were quite striking, so the, the, the movie's been out just a little bit, we're recording on September 8th, what has been the reaction to this film?
1: Uh, the reaction from those who've seen it have been overwhelmingly positive uh people are, are are saying that they're learning things that they have never known or never really thought about we're connecting dots for people that they uh kind of speculated but uh, weren't able to exactly close the circuit if you will and so this film is is doing just that and Uh, To be quite honest with you, that was actually a a goal of ours. We didn't want to put out another film that would just recycle the same old talking points, but we wanted to challenge ourselves and challenge our audience as well to dig deeper and to lift the veil and look underneath the surface for a lot of the, the deceptive tactics that are used to further divide our country based on race and class and sex and other things.
0: Yeah, the the frustration that I have around the division of race uh, in America is it's it's the way the arguments framed is very much a America centric type argument. If you go to other countries where you see that there's um, struggle between the races or ethnic groups of the same race, um, it, it's, it's really weird how in the United States we've kind of made this so much about color instead of the, the issues at hand. And so what, why is that?
1: Well, um, as Dr. Bodhi Bauckham points out in the film, black Blackness have become a religion, and that's on purpose. Uh, and it hasn't always been that way. Um, uh, the Christian faith amongst Black people, especially in the South, uh, at the turn of the 20th century into the mid-20th century, has been very much... Uh, biblical cent- or Bible centric in terms of, you know, taking the ethics that comes from scripture and applying it to our lives uh, and how we look at ourselves and how we treat our neighbors. And so there was a, a, a high Christian value and black culture that resulted in uh, incremental growth and success and, and faith uh, that was subverted over time. And as we point out in the film, if we were to put our finger on that time, it would be uh, around the 60s during the height of the civil rights movement, where the onus was taking off, taken off of us uh, as individuals to be men, to be women of virtue, um, and to take responsibility of our own lives and our own circumstances, instead of letting our circumstances you know, define us or to uh, identify ourselves as victims. And so um, as you move into the 70s, and you see this kind of fetishization of blackness with uh not only in in terms of policy but also in the entertainment industry you know james brown james brown's you know say it loud i'm black and i'm proud uh, black is beautiful blackness black that black everything everything's about black and so blackness itself becomes a religion at the same time james cone uh publishes his book about Black theology, and he's promoting Black liberation theology, and a lot of the churches begin to teach this, and so you're able to, in a sense, uh, uh, gradually shift the religious consciousness among an entire uh, religious group of, of Black people, um, to the extent where you now have a lot of, of, uh, of Black people and white people who believe wrongly when it comes to the scriptures and have a completely just wrong theology. And they say that they believe in God, but what they believe in is self and and skin color. And so to, to answer your question, uh, that's where I stand, at least when it comes to how we move from focusing
0: on the God of the Bible to the God of, of Blackness, if that makes sense. So when you're looking at this issue particularly, um, what's tied into this is history, right? So going back into history. And so the question that has to be dealt with is what is a current generation's responsibility to the sins or the missteps or the problems of previous generations? And so um, how do you conceptualize that issue? This generation today that I'm 37. So what responsibility does my generation have, if any, for what the previous generations have done?
1: Well, the responsibility that we have is to not take everything at face value uh, the fact of the matter is that history will always be used to shape uh, uh, public policy, um, to shape public school curriculum, um, and not only that, but to help make sense of what's happening here and now. And it just so happens that the people who are at the head of history telling and storytelling happen to have a very left-wing bent and in many cases, we find that these people have an agenda, uh, that they are antithetical to the Constitution on the one hand, but also to Christian ethics on the other. And what they want is a very postmodern uh, ethic to undergird <clears throat> the way that we move as a society. And they also want... Um, <clears> throat> my, my throat's a little dry, but they also want... Um, the uh, postmodern worldview to shape uh, you know, public policy and the way that laws are shaped, in a sense, moving us away from a, a kind of constitutional republic to more of an egalitarian socialist-esque uh, democracy. And so this is very much what these people want and they use history as fodder, or at least revised history, revisionist history as fodder uh, to meet those ends. Now, um, Again, Uncle Tom 2 is important because it offers a, another perspective. It offers uh, the sides of history that we're not being told about on PBS or, you know, on mainstream news or even in, you know, public school curriculum. Uh, you know, Stalin once said that if I can take your history, I can take your country. And that's, that's exactly what what's going on. I'll, I'll, I'll also say this. Before we move on to the next question, or you know, um, before you uh, you know react react to what I just said, <clears throat> that uh, Ibram X. Kendi, he's a pseudo public intellectual. He wrote a, his real name is Hank Rogers, so I'll refer to him for the rest of this uh, interview as Hank Rogers. So Hank Rogers wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and in that book, he proceeds to uh, to push forth this narrative of history, the history of racism, as he calls it, um, who invented racism, and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of it is this kind of Howard Zinn-esque revised history. And then toward the end of the book, he proceeds to offer or propose policy that he believes is anti-racist policy, that if we push it through, will move us closer to utopia, closer to nirvana. Um, and so these people are constantly using history as a means to shape the future. Um, this is very Tower of Babel kind of thing that's going on. You know, they're trying to build their Tower of Babel. They're trying to build uh, a city that pays homage, a globalist city that pays homage to man. Um, and they're using our schools to do so. And they're using history as, 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 their, uh, as their incision point.
0: If that makes sense, yeah. Okay, so one of the the claims in the movie is that um, Black Lives Matter um, and some of the other movements throughout history and Black culture in the U.S. have actually been promoted or organized or I don't know how I will well, let you phrase the right word, but but started by white people, and, and so I found that an interesting thing because on some level, there you point out um, in the film regularly um, a frustration from black culture towards white, white people. And yet your ultimate conclusion, it seems on some level is that white people kind of are kind of are to blame for some of this because they're still pushing these narratives at the top, at least moving down. How do you reconcile that?
1: That's, a, that's an excellent question. And so um, we're not coming from the premise that white people are our enemy. Um, we believe, and I believe personally, as a Christian, that our battle is in against flesh and blood. Uh, what we are doing is we're exposing these people for, for we're exposing the, their arguments because what they, what they uh, assert, and this just happened this week on Twitter uh, with, with our movie, you know Uncle Tom 2 was directed by Justin Malone, who happens to be a white man. And so a so-called investigative journalist was in a sense dogging the movie and then he ends it by, oh, and by the way, this movie is, a, is directed by a white man. And so they are constantly, so what they do, and and we're going to, you know, strip this thing down to the bare bones so as to eliminate any confusion and any fluff, what these people do as a tactic is they use Blackness as a weapon. Um, Whenever it comes to a lot of these Black activists and intellectuals who are very liberal, um, they uh, come off as though they're comfortable in their blackness. Everything's about black. You know, they're very pro-black, they say. It's, all, it's about black love. It's about black expression. It's about black self-determination. Black, black, black. Everything's about black. And whenever someone like myself comes along who doesn't have a problem with white people, who doesn't have a problem with Western civilization, uh, we are lambasted as Uncle Tom, sellouts, bootlickers, so on and so forth. And they say that because they they're trying to say that we're trying to suck up to white people right? So for me to come along and say, well, hold on, let's look at who is actually behind what you're doing. Let's look at the brain trust of your ideology. And when I lift up that veil and see that it's actually white Marxists who are driving their thought patterns, who are driving what they're doing, who are driving their movements and their organizations, it kind of expose them as hypocrites. Because on the one hand, they're asserting their blackness, but they're doing so at the direction of white Marxists. And so, and so we're not coming from the same place in terms of exposing who's behind them, because at the end of the day, I don't care who whose books you read and what color their skin is. I, it frankly doesn't matter to me, but you can't on the one hand claim that you are all about you know, keeping everything black when you're getting your marching orders from white Marxists. So that's that was the
0: that was the point in, in covering that up. I hope that answers your question, though. No, that's a good question because I mean, I think I think that as you watch the film, it's it's interesting to see the, that conclusion that you're drawing there, um, and yet it's 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 ironic that the same people in the film who are who are, who are bemoaning um, a white supremacist kind of ideology that's that's holding them down are being ultimately funded or led or, or pushed by white people, and it's like, well. Okay, if we want to talk about white supremacy, that's a conversation we can have, of course, but, but there is a little bit of irony here that, that the people yeah. who are at the top are doing this. And then there is a fundamental question when you get into these things about um, policies and how they're enacted and, and, and what, who has what best um, um, motivations for people, and to your point – it doesn't have to be a racial thing and it should be a racial thing it should be a best practices best idea best philosophy that's what we should be debating um and whether that comes from a white person black person you know whatever that, that, that's that's a secondary that's a secondary question it's it's what is the actually yeah. a realm of ideas and we've lost that it seems like in the us to debate it, it does happen some but at the top level the top politicians right or left we don't really debate the ideas anymore we debate we debate these these, um, these things that are, I, I think, intentionally meant to divide us, whether you're, you're white or black, they're, they're very much um, pushed down to, to keep us apart.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And it's unfortunate because, you know, the fact that we even have to address the fact that it's actually white Marxists behind these people who are claiming to be pro-black um, is something that, you know, I'd rather not do, but I feel like I need to do it because for so long, um, people who are bringing substance to the conversation are oftentimes ostracized and kicked out uh, merely uh, by this, you know, Uncle Tom sellout uh, pejorative. And so, if I can address that and get that out of the way, get the fluff out of the way, uh, what it does is it opens it up to where we can now talk about the subset of stuff. Because the fact of the matter is, the conversation, um, my hope is, is more beneficial to the observer and the spectator than it is to myself or the person who's arguing from the other side. Uh, Whenever the spectator is listening to the conversation uh, between myself and someone who is on the left, uh, typically what happens is that person for lack of knowledge is going to, is going to agree more or be intimidated or convinced by the individual who's yelling the loudest or who is, you know, uh, uh, uttering, you know, the pejorative, so on and so forth. And so if I can say, well, hold on, let's, let's take a look at where you get your ideology from. Let's take a look at where you get your thoughts and ideas from. Are they, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if your whole thing is, is about how everything should be Black and you're a Pan-Africanist, uh, why is it that on the one hand you're saying, to your, the point you made, why is it that on the one hand, you're saying that white supremacy is a cancer, uh, that you know white people have always kept us down, so on and so forth, but you make accommodations for these white people who are, are atheists, who believe in Marxism, who believe in globalism and all the things that are antithetical to human flourishing by any degree. So that, that's something that people ought to look at.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about a few. Um, the question of history comes up on the podcast quite often. Um, I like mm-hmm. history. I find it interesting. And so I was fascinated by a couple of things that you bring out in the film. First, let's talk about Rosa Parks. Um, unpack maybe a little bit of, obviously we're familiar with the story at the high level, but maybe what your or the film's perspective is on the Rosa Parks incident and maybe how it could have been handled differently because I thought that was kind of a, a a stunning thing when I heard it. I was like, huh, I hadn't thought about it like that either. So uh, I'm curious if, If you could unpack that for the listeners. So what you're referring to was a point in the film
1: where Charlemagne, who is one of the hosts of a radio program called The Breakfast Club, is interviewing a Black economist by the name of Dr. Claude Anderson. And Claude Anderson's family uh, used to own a bus company. Um, a transit company that owned 500 buses, all of the mechanics were black, all of the electricians were black, the bus drivers were black, everybody who worked for this company were black. This company was doing actually quite well uh, prior to the civil rights movement. And um, basically he was being asked about whether forced integration helped or harmed the black community. And this is one of those questions that gets sensationalized. There's a lot of emotionalism attached to it. And for that reason, unfortunately, people aren't willing or interested in debating the facts. The fact is, government-mandated segregation was unconstitutional and wrong. I believe that. Everybody who made this film believe that. There is no denying that. However, the extreme of government force integration is equally unconstitutional and that's not act, that's not a niche thing to believe there are people from various sides of the political spectrum who believe who agree who believe the same thing for example uh, Malcolm X he argued against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for this reason uh, when he was alive so too did Governor uh, Lester Maddox of of Georgia who you know was accused of being a racist so too did did gov- or Senator Barry Goldwater, who is also accused of being a racist, and so you have all these different people of different, you know, uh, skin tones, of different political ideologies, different backgrounds, who were able, who had sense enough to point out the fact that government force integration is unconstitutional. Uh, just recently, you had uh, Denzel Washington, who said that the government can't force or mandate love. That's something that has to happen in the hearts of man. Uh, the government getting involved uh, is not going to help it one way or the other. In fact, in many cases, it's going to hinder it. And so that's the question that we have to to discuss in a cordial uh, way. But unfortunately, um, that doesn't happen because these these matters tend to get uh, over sensationalized. And
0: so let me, let me, uh, the bus we, boycott- Can I pause you real quick? Yeah, just before you go in further. Yeah. So I think make sure I'm following the argument here. What you're saying is you've made a film Um, And all that you really need is that the law is, um, the barrier of entry is low, which it should be. There's to me laws that prevent people. So if the barrier of entry is low, um, then the market will ultimately allow people to um, make films whether you're black, white, or or whatever, or whatever the case might be. What you don't want is um, the law shaping who can make a film, how they get access to money, those are the problems that call that, that then push these issues further but if you lower the barriers barriers of, in, of entry which they should be um then you might have a very bad person who will not loan money to a black filmmaker because he is a racist right mm-hmm. however you would have a a person who isn't a racist and goes yeah a black filmmaker makes good film i'm going to lend him money and we're going to make money because you're too stupid to take this to, to let this guy make a film and so The argument I think you're making essentially is we don't want the government to set the barrier of entry because that prohibits the black or the white or whoever it is from having the access. You might have bad actors in the economy and you will because some people are bad, but the barrier of entry, as long as it's set by an individual and not by the government, you can get around that and thrive in that environment. I think, is that that a good summation of what you're saying?
1: Yes, that is an awesome summation of what I'm saying. Um, You hit the nail right on the head. Uh, so thank you for for clarifying that. Um, so yes, the, the what the way Manning Johnson and you know for those who haven't, I encourage you to uh, to go to YouTube and type in Manning Johnson farewell address. It's a it's an excellent speech, uh, phenomenal speech. It was it helped me it helped open my eyes to a lot of things. But in it, he said what the uh, what the rhetorical campaign of the civil rights movement did, particularly as it relates to forced integration, is it placed a stigma of inferiority on uh, Black people in the workforce uh, and on Black businesses. Because think about that. If you are a, a, a Black kid who uh, uh, you turn on your TV and you see your so-called race leaders uh, saying and, and, and fighting and, and desperately trying to get into so-called white spaces, uh, when in your own life, in your own uh, context, your dentist is black, your doctor is black, all the teachers at your school are black, uh, all the people that you know, and the professional element of your life and your neighborhood are black. But yet the people who were told are our leaders are saying, well, we want to be, you know, in the white spaces, we want to go to the white doctors, we want to go to white, this white, that white, everything, you're going to automatically believe that, Well, okay, well, what's so special about, these spaces (laughs) what's so special about their doctors and their dentists Mm. are they somehow better than what i've been going to and there's been studies done on the uh what happened to a lot of these black professionals after the passage of these civil rights uh acts and it wasn't it wasn't pretty and so that's something that we haven't contended with because we're so overjoyed at the passage of these bills and so uh anyway so so back to the uh the boycott thing um it was saw it was seen as a master play uh after its success uh Martin Luther King was instantly skyrocketed to some kind of of, of a race hero he was invited all over the the world uh, to go to you know different um to to be celebrated so on and so forth uh but the fact of the matter is uh when it comes to Rosa Parks in particular who you asked about she was I think the treasurer for the local NAACP uh, the media misled people and making you think that she was just some seamstress who was tired after a long day's work. And, you know, she wanted to sit down on the bus and some along came some white man who was upset that she was sitting where he wanted to sit. And, and, you know, the rest of history. And so there was a lot of deceptive uh, dramatization that went on in order to uh, in order to make that a thing uh, in the first place, again, all meaning to sensationalize and emotionalize the situation, but I, I do encourage people to watch that particular scene to help make sense of of what it is I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was interesting because, um, yeah, and it, it, it's it's so weird that we have to say stuff like this. But no one's warning people to be forced to sit in the back of the bus, right? No one's warning these type of discriminations, and so it's weird that you have to clarify yourself. Because to your point, if you take any kind of view, just trying to have a discussion today, people go go crazy, and it, it, it's it's depressing. Um. Disagreement yeah, I mean, them. the whole point, the whole point is, you know, um,
1: instead of trying so hard to force yourself into spaces that where people don't want you, or where you're treated uh, as lesser than um, you have the opportunity here in the United States of America, to create your own, which is exactly what people were doing. Um, and as a result, you did have a lot of success you did have a lot of productivity and in many cases that which blacks were producing was better in quality than that which was available uh, uh for whites and a- another thing that we don't talk about is the fact that in many cases a lot of these so-called Jim Crow laws were being repealed at the municipal and state level across the south uh, because people were finding that these laws were uh they were unfeasible; um, that they just didn't make sense; that they were an economic burden, so on and so forth. And that was depart from the civil rights movement. And so, because we're not willing to invest in having a, a full picture understanding of just what the past was like, uh, we uh, we just believe or go along with the narrative that Black people were the scum of the earth; that they were under the uh, oppression or under the thumb of, of white people. Um, and we needed Martin Luther King. We needed the civil rights movement uh, to, uh, in a sense, bring about equality. But that's just a, a grave misunderstanding of, of the past.
0: One of the things that the, the film it, it kind of frustrated me was talking about the Tulsa race riot, the Tulsa race massacre. I've heard the term, I've never really looked into it in depth. I had no idea there was a Black Wall Street. I had no idea. And I was like, how, how have I missed? that there was this Black Wall Street because it sounds from the film like a a, a spot of, of people thriving. They're doing work. They're making money. They're building communities. I, I've never heard about that. Now, again, I haven't looked into the, t- the Tulsa race uh, stuff a lot. I've, I've just kind of heard people talk about it at large. And so um, I kind of knew that was out there, but I had no idea it was that Black Wall Street shows my ignorance. So unpack kind of what was Black Wall Street for people like me who are just ignorant and don't know. And then you have an interesting take on the Tulsa uh, riots, massacre, however you want to phrase that. Yeah,
1: so uh, it, uh, it wasn't just a you know one Black Wall Street. In fact, there are many uh, similar neighborhoods across the South. Which again, that speaks to you know exactly what you're saying, and you're not the only one. I mean, I think I would venture to say the majority of us because we all went to the same public schools. We all were taught the same history lessons, uh, you know? So, so we have this narrative of Black people always being, uh, you know, oppressed and, and sad and, and gloomy and all these different things. That's that's our perception of the past. And so, you know, we, we never think about the fact that Black people were just as prosperous in many cases as white as their white neighbors, and in some cases, uh, even more prosperous, and such was a case uh, there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was an oil town at the time. You had both Blacks and whites working in the oil fields, and you had what was called the Green District, uh, Greenwood. You had what was called the Greenwood District, which was the, the Black Business District, where you had all these successful Black businesses, and there was a, a issue that, that, went, that happened uh, on an elevator with a man named Dick Rowland, uh, he was accused of, of touching, raping, or groping a 16-year-old white girl. And um, the way that I learned the story growing up, because my mother's from Oklahoma, and my, my, my grandmother was born uh, near uh, the area where all the stuff went down. Um, the way that I've always heard the story framed is that white people were jealous of black people because they had the best part of the land there in the greenwood district and so they resolved this plan to go in to burn everything down and to take the land for themselves so that's how i always had heard it framed uh i of course was born in 1990 uh, throughout the 90s you had all these uh you know these race films that were coming out films like rosewood um and others that that kind of depicted this white terror being rained down on, on successful black people and 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 you know, and poor blacks. And so that, again, kind of gives you uh, the, the backdrop of, of how the narrative is framed. Um, but after diving deep into the story and um, to the facts, I should say, of what actually happened, uh, the reason why this white mob in Tulsa, Oklahoma showed up to the jailhouse was because an article was written and the Tulsa Tribune uh, and its title was NAB Negro, for raping white girl. And so they, they showed up to the jailhouse. Uh, conversely, a black mob also showed up because they heard that this white mob was going down to the jailhouse. They were informed uh, of this by a black newspaper. Now, what they don't tell us is the fact that the white newspaper was edited by a man named Richard Lloyd-Jones, who was a huge progressive. You know, um, if you look into him, if you look into his wife, they were both uh, advocates for, you know, Planned Parenthood. They were advocates for a lot of so-called liberal causes, and in fact, um, um, had ties to the Communist Party. And so, why is it that a uh, a a, a ma- or, or a newspaper that's advocating for white people to nab Negro? Um, why would communists or socialists or progressives, whatever you want to call them, why would they uh, uh, be enticing poor white people to nab a Negro if at the same time they're professing to be allies and heroes of the Black cause? The reason for that is because they actually play both sides. On the one hand, they like to entice and stir up and, and, and agitate and cause racial friction. And on the other hand, they like to come off as the heroes and the people who have the answers. It's, it's a simple uh, uh, old trick of divide and conquer. That's exactly the name of their game. And so the white mob showed up. There was a shot fired. Uh, there was a big brawl that took place. Uh, there were a couple dozen people who died both black and white. It wasn't 300 black people. Uh, I don't know where that number came from, but it's not verified. In fact, if you look at the uh, facts surrounding, um, you know, the Tulsa race riot uh, from various reputable publications, those publications can't even agree on what the number was. Uh, A lot of people uh, uh, who are investigating it now are saying, well, there's a mass grave somewhere, but they have yet to find that mass grave. Uh, And so, after the brawl happened, after everything went down, there was another article released by the Tulsa Tribune uh, which says something to the effect of we, can ne- we, we should never let these Negroes build here again. But what actually happened was they did build again. They reclaimed their land very quickly. They built it back, in some cases, with the help of white folks. And Black people thrived and succeeded in this area for the next 40 years until the civil rights movement. Um, And so if the article is saying, never let these Negroes build again, but the Negroes actually did build again, that in my opinion is indicative of the fact that after everything went down, after the brawl went down, the blacks and the whites, they understood, well, you know, things happen. We did some things that were wrong. You guys did some things that were wrong. Everybody is wrong here. Uh, let's just, you know, take our ball and go home, um, and, uh, you know, continue as things were, because everybody understood (laughs) that this whole thing was a huge mess that got out of hand quickly. Um, if it really, if, if what I've been told all my life was true, that the whole thing was set up in the first place, uh, so that white people can come and take the land. Why didn't they take the land? Why didn't they take this business district? Why were these blacks allowed to come back and build again? Um, So something's kind of fishy about it, and I I think that Uncle Tom, too, um, in part three, which is forthcoming, uh, uh, does a better job at really explaining what happened versus the narrative that's putting forth by a lot of these progressive historians and storytellers. Sorry for the long. No, no, it's it's great.
0: It's great because, like I said, I I remember hearing about this, I don't know, a few years ago, went to public school, so you know, didn't go, graduate college. So I am definitely behind on some of these issues. And so I'd heard about it. I was like, okay, and I, I think I did a quick Wikipedia search or just kind of read a headline or something. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty bad. And then I saw in the film, you you focused on it for a while. I was like, oh, okay. I never heard of the yeah. Black Wall Street portion. And that was that was quite fascinating. Um, just to hear about that aspect uh, alone um, on the on the stuff about this, what the actual numbers might be. But this, the Black Wall Street was, was fascinating and a, a great reminder of, what humans can do if given the opportunity mm. to, to thrive, yeah, to thrive, and they're and the you know the people set the way they can thrive and they can rebuild, and part of that message has been lost in 2022, and so I thought I thought there was a very powerful um, illustration there. Okay, so one one more um, question about the about the film before I let you go here is, what do you hope to accomplish? What is what is your are you trying to convert? progressives? Are you trying to reinforce uh, conservatives potentially? You just try to start a conversation. What is the hope of this film?
1: Yeah, I think the latter um, really start a conversation. The thing is um, I think it's very strange how historians on the one hand look to the civil rights movement um, and even some things that are happening now with black lives matter and other social justice movement uh, groups. uh, And they point to these, these groups and these organizations and these events as being not only a high point for America progressivism but also as something to emulate in terms of holding the moral high ground and we should be very wary of that especially as Christians uh, because the only thing that we're supposed to emulate is the scriptures and Jesus you know Um, and so my hope is that christians more than anything will kind of check themselves and ask the question of have i placed man on a pedestal um have i done a good job of testing every spirit to see if it is of god um, or am i going along with these kind of enshrined uh mythologies um that have in a sense shaped uh, uh where we are now, and in some cases, the, the, the church. Um, are we looking to Christ as a model or are we looking to man and man's events as the model? Um, so, you know, the, the film was not done in Malice. Uh, we were not uh, discussing Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or any of these other people uh, in Malice. Although I do think it's important to look into what Dr. King actually believed and instead of just believing the narrative that is in many cases based in false mythology more than it is the truth. Uh, I I hope that people take away from this um, uh, a resolve to uh, not be so uh, uh, thrown in the wind uh, uh, by whatever it is the people who are supposed to be uh, mainstream storytellers are, are, are leading us. Uh, and also, too, like what we what we show in the film is the various tactics of of uh, you know, those who claim to be uh, leaders in this crusade for a better world, the various tactics that they've used to get people to go along with whatever agenda it is they're pushing that it's important to show people that, that they might uh, be on their guard or resolve to be on their guard and not being so easily tricked by the next thing that comes along, um, but rather to remain principled and steadfast in their print and their values. uh, uh, So, so as to not, you know, be um, taken here and there, Uh, you know, in, in the scriptures we read that, uh, uh, we're not to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies, um, which a lot of us understand and we try to to take heed to. But what happens when those hollow and deceptive philosophies are delivered to us with a Christian tinge to it uh, where we can't decipher whether this thing is right or wrong, whether this thing is, is good or bad. Uh, that's something that, you know, again, we're not having conversations about. I mean, I think we're beginning to um, but Look no further than in the Bible, whenever Satan is trying to tempt Jesus, you know, what is he using to do that? He's using the scriptures. And so we can't think it's inconceivable or unfathomable that these ideologies will try to make their way into the church uh, or that some politician will try to get us to go along with whatever their moral, whatever their campaign is and using kind of spiritual sound and language to get us to go along with it. We have to ever be on our guard. And so, and so for me, I think this film is more for, for Christians than anything, uh, but really it's for everybody who is interested in knowing uh, the truth or at least the parts of history that isn't, isn't often talked about in the mainstream.
0: Yeah. I, okay. So thank you for that. And I'll just add this. I mean, I think um, the history, you know, if you said what happened on September 8th, 2022 in my life right this this podcast would be one of the things that that said but my perspective on this podcast is only one perspective your perspective there's someone over there that was filming you earlier my wife's we come home you know so we start trying to include we've we've taken history and we said we can deduce history down to a date a time a place a thing a very very small object and then we can decipher what was happening and in all of these stories and events it's very complicated you know you're trying to get an overarching picture and then trying to figure out what that means, and then take it from different perspectives. And so if you have a progressive um, newspaper editor who's putting out stuff, well, that does influence the narrative, right? But then you have the people who are reading the story and how they feel. So I I think we've kind of lost the fact that as we try to tell history, we're telling parts of history, fragments of history. And the more fragments you can tell, the better we can understand it. But the less we study it, the harder it is to actually understand the full picture and the full picture is going to be messy. It's not going to be fully clear, but it's very hard. And so um, I think films like this are important and they're good to get the conversation started. So thank you for that. When does uncle Tom three come out? Do you have a date for that? Is it it still in production? Where's that at?
1: Uh, So yes, it's still in production. We don't have a date for, um, uh, you know, for when it's coming out, but um, we strangely enough, we've had a lot of people uh, come to us asking if they can be in it. So um, but yeah, the uh, the reception of part two has been overwhelmingly uh, positive, which, in a, if, if I may admit, kind of shocked me because I was expecting, uh, at least to some degree, people to to uh, not know what to make of the film or to uh, try to distance themselves from it. And so and I think there is going to be some of that. But, um, you know, the reviews on our IMDb page uh, the reviews that I personally been, have been getting you know, in my DMs and so on and so forth uh, have been r- really overwhelmingly positive. And so I'm grateful for that because, again, the film was not done with the intent of being provocative for, you know, uh, provocation's sake uh, or to uh, uh, go after anybody uh, with malice, but rather to try to flesh out some of these things that are are perpetually being um covered up or broached, you know, uh, dismissed. So okay. And where do you want us to send people to? Uncle Tom.com. Um you can watch Uncle Tom Two there. You can buy DVDs, you can buy bundles, do all those things. Yeah, go on over to
0: uncletom.com um, to see what we're talking about. Okay. Listeners, we'll link to that again in the show notes, which are at RyanRaySenior.com. So you can go find all of that there, or if you can remember remember that domain, which is quite easy, UncleTom.com. Just head on over there and watch the film. Chad, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Okay, there it is. Chad O'Jackson, the film Uncle Tom 2. We'll link to all that in the show notes. Let me know what you think about this episode at WarRoomMedia.com.